Hey everyone, this is Jamie Bateman. Real quickly, I wanted to share with you something uh, that's been pivotal in the growth and success of my businesses, and that is my partnership with Haven Financial Services. Um, I've been working with Haven for over a year now. Christine Valdez was on episode 70 of this podcast. So go check that out if you want to hear her story. It was a fantastic personal story for sure. But Haven has been awesome. They provide me with monthly reports that are super clear and discernible. And it, that provides me with clarity and focus so that I can do what I do best, which is running my businesses, not preparing financial reports. Um, again, if you're in the market for a top-notch financial service company, uh, or if you just want to check one out, go to www.jamiebateman slash Haven and check out Haven Financial Services. Again, that's jamiebateman slash Haven. I uh, can't recommend them enough. Christine and her team have been fantastic. So I definitely recommend you check out Haven Financial Services at www.jamiebateman forward slash Haven. Let's get back to the show. On this episode, I got the chance to speak to Josh Cantwell of Freeland Ventures, uh, freelandventures.com. Josh has been an entrepreneur for 25 years, I think it is. And his, he's very well-spoken, super easy interview. Um, the only tough part with this interview is he has so much knowledge and so much to his story that you know, there's. I'd love to have him on for four or five episodes. It, this one's jam packed with very valuable information, and um, the primary uh, adversity that Josh faced, at least the that we focus on, is he is a pancreatic cancer survivor, which is quite rare. And um, you know, and one of the things I, for me, what struck me with this episode. Uh, a couple things. One is the advice his father gave him heading into his his surgery about, um, well, I'll just leave it there. It's fantastic advice for how to prepare and how to mentally get ready for um, challenges in life. And um, I really, really like that advice. And then um, just the fact that Josh has, he's spent a lot of time kind of pulling out principles uh, as to principles he learned through uh, from going through that adversity and print, he's well articulated and can clearly lay out principles that he personally applies in his business. He's got nine or 10 of them. We, we only get the chance to knock out four or five of the really big ones. Um, but if you're an entrepreneur, if you're a real estate investor, he's primarily a multifamily syndicator at this point, but he's done residential, all that stuff. If you're an entrepreneur, real estate investor, if you've had health challenges, um, if you're a cancer survivor, um, you know, I, I, th this episode is for you. It's a great one. Inspiring stories of real people overcoming incredible odds to live life to the fullest. We are all guaranteed to face hardships. How will we handle the adversity? Join us to be moved by everyday people who have turned poverty into prosperity and weakness into wealth. Be inspired as these relatable heroes get vulnerable. And former counterintelligence investigator Jamie Bateman puts his interviewing skills to the test. Restore your faith in humanity as you experience true Cinderella stories of average people turning surreal struggle and deep despair into booming businesses and financial fortune. Take ownership of the life you are destined to live and turn your adversity into abundance.
Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the From Adversity to Abundance podcast. I am your host, Jamie Bateman, and I'm super excited today to have a special guest on, Josh Cantwell of Freeland Ventures, freelandventures.com. Um, Josh has a really good story that we're going to dive into and pull out some some lessons learned. So I'm, I'm, I'm this is on paper you're you're a, the ideal je- guest, Josh. So I'm really excited to have you. How are, how are you doing today, Josh? Uh, I'm fantastic. I, uh, you know, it's been a fun day already. Uh, working with my broker on a building that we are selling. Um, we actually had our call for offer date last week, um, and so we've got seven offers to sort through. So we did, dealt with that this morning. <laughs> That's uh, a good actually, problem to have that we're buying next Friday, which is a six and a half million dollar acquisition. It's kind of on the smaller side for us. And so we're just buttoning up the final closing for that, going through the final closing checklist. And we're actually going to be closing about two weeks ahead of schedule. Um, So that's exciting. And tonight I'm going to watch my daughter play some volleyball. So I'm a huge fan. My daughter's in high school. uh, That's so cool. Even some varsity volleyball. So I'm going to go watch her. So that's a full fun day for me. Yeah, definitely. That's 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 a packed uh, packed day. That's that's cool. My my daughter actually just started playing volleyball in high school as well. Um, she's in tenth grade and she's nice. really taken to it. So, um, yeah, I'm excited. It's a great sport. I mean, it's so like I grew up playing football, basketball, baseball, right? And then I even mm-hmm. played college football. And um, there's no sport that I've ever played or coached or watched that is truly a team sport like volleyball. Like you cannot huh. have one person that's just your superstar like in football you could have an unbelievable quarterback like josh sure. allen last night the bills right right quarter million points you could have one basketball player lebron james kobe bryant that dominates the floor volleyball is truly need all six kids hmm. on the floor uh so it's my favorite of all the sports that's i've ever cool. played so yeah fun stuff that's really cool um yeah. So other than what you have going on, you know, this week and next week, what kind of tell our audience who you are today as far as this year, you know, sure. what you have, who you are and, and why we should listen to you. Sure. So, <laughs> um, so I've been an entrepreneur for 25 years. I guess we start with that. I've never okay. had a job. I've never had a boss. I'm 46 years old. I graduated from college and went immediately into financial planning um, and had no salary, no no regular paycheck. All commission. I ever got was 2000 bucks and it was a commission for selling financial services products like IRA rollovers, life insurance, estate planning, stuff like that. I remember sharing that check with my girlfriend who at that point was still in college. uh, And we were both like freaking out about how this (laughs) huge $2,000 paycheck. And that was my first entrepreneurial uh, paycheck. And it's Mm -hmm. always, it's been entrepreneurship for the last 25 years. Uh, today we we own three thousand units of apartments. We've done nineteen apartment syndications. We've owned as many as forty four hundred units. We sold off about thirteen hundred units last year, and we are one of maybe the two largest buyers, owners, operators of of apartments in the greater Cleveland area, Cleveland, Ohio. We also mm-hmm. buy in Columbus, Cincinnati, and Dayton, um, and uh, we're an owner operator, meaning we 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 buy them. We acquire them, we syndicate them, we manage them, and we do the capex from soup to nuts, A to Z. We don't outsource any of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have an incredible team, and I've built multiple, you know, eight and nine figure businesses. And so, um, I've been very blessed to be an entrepreneur for twenty five years, and I have a ton of knowledge around that subject. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of it I'll you know be able to share today. So that's yeah, that's absolutely. where I've been. 
No, that's <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, you have to. We have to gloss over so many things that I would love to dive into. Um, but maybe, maybe bring you back and have you pick your brain some more if you have if you have a few minutes. But yeah, that's fantastic. So um, obviously, the you know the the focus of this show is is uh, from adversity to abundance. You know, we all have we're all guaranteed to deal with adversity, challenges, obstacles, some kind of hardship in life. Um, and you know, what I've found is oftentimes entrepreneurs, um, I don't, I haven't defined, I haven't figured out the exact relationship yet, but it seems like entrepreneurs have this knack for, uh, overcoming adversity, getting through adversity and a lot of, um, you know, whether it's the entrepreneurship leading to the ability to overcome that adversity or probably, um, conversely, uh, getting through that adversity creates, um, the ability to apply lessons learned in in business, which I think is what we want to drill down on today. Um, for the listeners out there, let's go back and 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 kind of uh, you can pick it up wherever you'd like, as far as uh, you know age or circumstances. But like to kind of lead us up to your your major um, uh, example here of adversity that you've dealt with, which I know is a big one. So yeah, absolutely. So look, I think. The first thing to think about, Jamie, when it comes to entrepreneurship is that you are essentially, when you say that you want to be an entrepreneur, when you define yourself as an entrepreneur, uh, if you identify, this word identify is popular now, <laughs> identify as an entrepreneur, uh, you have basically said that you are going to forego all the security of a job, a W-2 job, security of working for somebody else in exchange for personal freedom. Okay. Sure. You're not you're not signing up to make more money. You're not sign, although that's your part of the goal. You're not signing up to have control of your time, although that's part of what you're trying to do. What you you've ultimately done is say, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. I'm going to chart my own course. I'm going to chart my own path. And I want to do that because I want to have true personal freedom to be able to make all my own decisions and define who I want to be around, who I want to associate with. You know, if I want to go borrow money, invest money, if I want to build a business and who I want on the team, all of that now becomes your own choice. But what you've foregone in exchange for that freedom is a lot of what people view as security of a regular day job with benefits, a 401k, uh, a W-2. And so I was very fortunate that my dad was an entrepreneur. My dad had done both. My dad had worked in a big Fortune 500 company, had worked at Sherwin-Williams, and my dad caught the bug as an entrepreneur when I was in grade school. And my dad actually, the reason why he became an entrepreneur is because when we were in sixth grade, my dad filed for bankruptcy because he was fired from his job. So he was fired from his job. He couldn't land another job. This is in the middle 1980s. The economy was, you know, remember back then there was still a lot of inflation. The economy was moving slowly. This was before Ronald Reagan kind of restarted the economy. And my dad couldn't land a job. So for a year, he went without a job and he filed for bankruptcy. So my mm -hmm. personal entrepreneurial journey actually starts with my dad's entrepreneurial mm -hmm. journey and bankruptcy. That's where it right. begins. So, so yeah, that's that's unfortunately an additional layer of adversity that that had to happen, I guess. Yeah. To, yeah so now, back then there was no Facebook. There's no Instagram. Like my dad was very private. So I didn't even know that my dad had filed mm -hmm. for bankruptcy until I was well into my 20s. So like 15 years later, 
Wow. Did they tell me? I was like, why was dad home that whole summer? <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. why was he cutting the grass on a Tuesday at one o'clock in the afternoon? Yeah. Um, and because he had been fired and because we had filed for bankruptcy, which hmm. means we literally had no money. We had like a thousand dollars in our bank account. There was five of us in the family. And what my dad decided to do after that bankruptcy was he decided to become an insurance salesman and then also decided to get into financial services. Then my dad ended up getting a job in, in an insurance brokerage. Then he ended up taking over a division. Then they spun off that division. Then he bought the division. So within 10 wow. years now, from the time they went from bankruptcy, now my dad owned the company. And they what he, what he ended up buying and spinning off was a uh, employee benefits company. So they had employee benefits for major companies. At one time, my dad's biggest client was Advanced Auto Parts, Fortune 500 company with 30,000 employees. Wow. <laughs> so my dad went from bankruptcy to having the condo in Hilton Head, the third or fourth car, you know, all of these things within 10 years because of entrepreneurship. Right. right. And you're seeing this all firsthand. So you're exactly. You're so super fortunate, Jamie, to be able to yeah. witness that in my own house. So when I graduated from college, it was natural for me to say, hey, I, I, I've been watching my dad do this. Now my dad right. was busting his ass. He was leaving the house at 637 in the morning, was getting home at seven o'clock at night. Right. Um, you know, that's the part I think people house. like to gloss over. You know, it's, it's, oh, yeah, yeah it's just, just yeah. create this side gig and then it turns into a, a full time job. But, but it's, it's easy. I could, you know, it's like, no, there's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears that went into your dad's success oh, yeah. and your own success. Um, so, but yeah, for so, him to be able to afford, right, for me to go to private high school and then for my brothers to all be in code and put us through college. Yeah. A very short, 10 or 15 years after filing for bankruptcy. That's, it was that's like, amazing. <laughs> wow, like, that's a real success there in a very short amount of time. Absolutely. Um, and so for me, what, but so my option was when I was getting out of college, like, did I want to follow my dad's path? Did I want to go work for my dad? Right. For me, it was like, I just wanted to be working on my own. So when I got an internship in financial services that allowed me to set my own schedule, work late hours if I wanted, cut out early if I wanted, earn my own paychecks, 100% commission. My dad flipped out. He lost his mind. He was so upset. Really? Because he's like, dude, I just spent how many tens of thousands oh, right, right, right. <laughs> college. Yeah. And now you're not even going to have a salary? Sure. Right. Not only that, but then at 24, I became a landlord. And I bought my first piece of real estate. And my mom's like, not only do you not have a job, not only do you right. not have a salary, but now you think you can be a landlord too? Like, what is wrong with you? And so it's, I looked at my dad's example and said, hey, like, wh what did you expect me to do? Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. I, mean, I, I actually was a little bit surprised that he was, I, I get the the college expense in hindsight. That makes sense. But the fact that he had fought that the secure job had ended the way it did and then entrepreneurship went much better. Yeah. You know, I would have thought maybe he'd uh, seen the the upside there, the the potential for you to be an entrepreneur, but and maybe he later changed his mind, I'm not sure, but um yeah, so so 24 you're a landlord and then pick it up from there. Yeah. So, well, then it became okay, financial services was really good to me. I I, yeah. I became a fee-based financial planner. I'm 22, 23, 25 years old, but I I recognize Jamie that a lot of my most successful clients own real estate. They didn't have all yeah, their money yeah. in the stock market. So I saw sure. firsthand when I did what was called a fact-finding appointment with a new potential client, 
And I learned about all their financial plan and what they owned and their net worth. The most successful guys owned buildings. They owned apartment buildings. They owned retail strip centers. They owned buildings and they leased them out to restaurants. They owned real estate. That was the biggest part of their portfolio. So I started going to the weekend warrior boot camps. I started learning everything I could about real estate while I was still doing financial planning. Started buying up real estate. I bought my first duplex. I bought a rehab. I bought another duplex. I bought another rehab. I started acquiring a rental portfolio and doing some flips on the side. And then in 2000, I graduated from college in 98. By 2005, I was like, I'm out. Like, th- I, I have the real estate bug. Like, I'm 100% going to do this. Mm-hmm. And I, I forego, I was making about 150 to 175 grand a year in financial planning and left it all behind because I just was like 100%. I was just, I was so drinking the Kool Aid, Jamie. I was so <laughs> in that I'm like, I don't, I don't want to do this financial planning thing anymore. Sure, so sure. like most people, I got into residential. I, I was flipping houses and I, I needed still, even though I had some money and I had some success uh, with my financial planning, I still didn't have a lot of money where I couldn't just put down 40 grand on a house and then 40 grand on another house and 40 grand on another house. I needed to do things with no money down, right? No income, no asset, no money down type of stuff. So I got into wholesaling. I got into flipping. I got into that kind of thing. And we had an unbelievable run from 2005 to 2011, we started doing pre-foreclosure, short sales, notes, mm-hmm. discounted notes, that kind of stuff, much like you did with mm-hmm. your former podcast. Yeah, um, yeah. And we were one of the big national speakers. We were doing events in Vegas and Dallas, and there were three, four, 500 attendees there because there were foreclosures in Cleveland about three years before the foreclosure crisis nationally. Mm, but like 10 publicly traded companies, Jamie, that folded, that went bankrupt or merged, that all were in Cleveland. So there was a glut of housing and a right. lot of people without jobs. And so we got into pre-foreclosures and short sales and negotiating notes and discounted debt and all that kind of stuff. That's awesome. And it went uh, really good. The one thing, sorry, it, it just, uh, it touches on the fact that the, if you're willing, if you're paying attention, you're willing to roll up your sleeves and work hard and network, real estate is a very inefficient you know, uh, I guess, economy or part of the economy, if you will, se- sector where you can really make some good money if you see that you can see the opportunity coming if you know what you're doing. In other words, yes, you can make money in stocks, but in general, real estate is a much more slow moving <laughs> asset right. class, right? And so if you had, you know, this knowledge way before anybody else did nationally, or maybe not anyone, but before the the national media and most other people were talking about it. And you were able to use that and see that as an opportunity and and profit from that, sounds like. Is that fair to say? Oh, sure. And I and no question and Jamie, not only that back then, but even today with apartments, mm-hmm. um like the, the the building I'm buying next week is a 41 unit, but it's actually in downtown Cleveland. So it's a premier trophy A class asset. And lots of other people would look at that deal and now everybody has a different business plan. So when sure, you sure. look at the, the, the yield or the spread between mm-hmm. what we're paying for it and what it's going to be worth, you're exactly right that there's a tremendous amount of inefficiency in the marketplace mm-hmm. and somebody that is trained, that executes, that is networked well, that has access to a lot of private capital. Mm-hmm. They they can take advantage of these inefficiencies. That's basically what we do today, still. Mm-hmm. With just we just now do it in the commercial space, and we've been doing it really, really big time in the commercial space for the last seven or eight years. Um. So, but 
those were those efficiencies back then. Mm-hmm. And it was a fun business, but it was very transactional. Like it was, it was, it was yeah, flip yeah. a house, it was wholesale a house, it was negotiate a short sale, flip a property, make a five thousand dollar check or a fifty thousand dollar check. Or we met we once made a five hundred thousand dollar check, mm-hmm. but then you had to go back and you do it. Get, gotta go out and do it again, right? Yeah. And so I, we were kind of getting sour on it because it was so transactional. And at the same time, is really when adversity really hit me and my family big time. Um, in 2011, uh, I'll never forget it, Jamie. I came home from work. I was doing the business of pre foreclosure, short sale investing, foreclosure investing. I came home. I had two young kids, uh, two years old and one year old. My wife was eight months pregnant with our third. So we were knocking out our third kid in four years. <laughs> and, um, and I came home and I was playing with my two little girls and just like any new dad would be doing. And I laid on the floor in my living room. I looked up at the ceiling fan. I crossed my hands across my stomach. And just like that, I felt this giant lump on the left side of my stomach. Mm. And I was like, wow, that that's big. And it's kind of on a, the, only on the one side. It's kind of like in a weird place, like below my rib cage, kind of. And I was like, hey, honey, come here. I told my wife, Lisa, I said, come on over here, check this out. She's kind of poking around. And it's kind of, again, it's kind of odd shaped and kind of thick mm-hmm. and hard like a rock. Mm-hmm. And she's like, wow, like that can't be good. Like that's in a weird place. I said, I know. I, I, I've never seen that before. I've never so felt So there was it. no no pain or discomfort or anything. I mean, it was just. Well, I had a back pain. I had uh-huh. a back about three years leading up to then. Gotcha. And I had been, it turns out it was misdiagnosed for three straight years by three different doctors. One wow. guy said, oh, it was, you know, it was, it was, um, it was arthritis from football, college football. Another guy said it was, um, like some sort of, uh, inflammation or something. Sure. Um, they prescribed like Z-packs, steroids, and like, you know, physical therapy. And right. none of them ordered a CT scan. <laughs> and a CT scan would have told everybody that it was advanced pancreatic cancer. Wow. Um, it wasn't uh, pulled muscle. It wasn't, you know, those kind of things. It was advanced pancreatic cancer. And wow. I quickly learned that right about the same time, Steve Jobs from Apple Computer mm-hmm. had just been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Hmm. And I had just learned that uh, Luciano Pavarotti, the great opera singer, um, mm-hmm. had died from pancreatic cancer. And I would learn very quickly that Patrick Swayze um, mm-hmm. died from pancreatic cancer. And all of a sudden, I read that the survival rate for pancreatic cancer was about 6%. Wow. And I thought to myself, I can't can't even imagine. Holy, (laughs) this is not good. Um, And so, what's, yeah, what else is going through your mind at that time? uh, So, what happened was when I, when I, when I felt this lump in my stomach, my wife's eight months pregnant. And, I went to my buddy across the street, you know, my, my buddy Latul Farrow, Dr. Latul Farrow with the Cleveland Clinic, friend of mine from college, play college. He's an orthopedic surgeon. So he's not an internal medicine doctor, but he's an orthopedic surgeon. I go over to him. Mm-hmm. He's like, you know, Josh, that's, that's in a weird place. It's not a hernia. That's not a sports injury. You need a CT scan. You got to go check that out. Mm-hmm. So my wife and I decided because she was eight months pregnant, we were going to wait till after my son was born. Mm-hmm. Okay. So my son's born, some complications with that, but he had a surgery shortly after he was born. He had some kind of cyst in his neck that was mm-hmm. taken out. He was fine. So about 10 days after his surgery, 
I finally went and got checked out. And a doctor pulled it up on the screen. He showed me my insides from the CT scan and said, Josh, see this big gray mass here? You know, this isn't supposed to be here. Um, I'm sorry to tell you, you have advanced pancreatic cancer. And my son was actually still in the hospital recovering from surgery. My wife had just had an emergency C-section about three or four weeks before that. So my wife is recovering from surgery. My son just had surgery. Um, and now I've been told that I have advanced pancreatic cancer. And I, by the way, I still have a three-year-old and a two-year-old at home. I was going to say, your, your other two kids went through my mind. Like, where, where are they? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, this all happened, actually, the day I was diagnosed. It happened on my, my oldest daughter, her first day of her first day of school ever, her first day of three-year-old preschool. Um, and so we'll never forget. Like, sure. When your daughter goes off to school, it's supposed to be great. She's wearing the little dress and the little shoes. Right. And she goes off to school. And um, by about noon that day, I had found out that I was like deathly ill, very, very, very sick. Um, so qu question now, you hate to second guess, of course, but I'm just curious, had the original, you know, three years prior, if they diagnosed it correctly, you know, maybe this is a dangerous line of questioning mentally. I don't know, but was were you advanced at that point or you know would it have been a how would things have been different if you if it had been caught two or three years prior yeah i mean nobody's ever asked me that that's a great <laughs> question um gotcha. i've done a lot of interviews and i've talked about this a lot <laughs> nobody's ever asked me that but to think three years prior so you know three years prior i had just met my wife like mm -hmm. you know and we, we we dated for a year we got engaged we waited another year to get married and then we got pregnant like literally a month after we got married so that all of that happened with my own wife within three years for our first child and then mm -hmm. we had another child right away after that so within four years of meeting my wife we had dated engaged married and knocked out two kids and so if I had been diagnosed three years earlier it would have been like we had only maybe had our first child Right. And maybe gotcha. I wouldn't have had my second. Maybe I would be going through <laughs> yeah. all these medical procedures and surgeries. Sure. My right. family dynamic might be totally different. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, well, and I, I do believe personally that everything happens for a reason. And, you know, I don't, I, we're getting philosophical here. So, just, you know, I was just curious what if you thought about that. But so um, that's obviously not the way things played out. So, so how did things play yeah. out? So I was very fortunate. Um, my oncologist, Dr. Ali, referred me to, <laughs> I get a little emotional about this, but he sure. referred me to Dr. Matthew Walsh. Dr. Matthew Walsh at the Cleveland Clinic is a miracle worker. Um, so I'll never forget when I went in, was diagnosed, I met with him. I got a second opinion, went back to Dr. Walsh. And uh, I'll never forget, he had this $1,500 pair of Peruvian shoes on. <laughs> I love shoes. Like I, I like okay. one thing I really enjoy is like cool different shoes. Uh-huh. And we were talking about his shoes. And so I'm sitting there very sick and we're talking about the surgery. And I'm like, wow, those are incredible shoes. And he's like, Yeah, I got them from Peru. I'm like, dude, let me ask you, like, how much are a pair of shoes like that? It's like Fifteen hundred bucks. I was like, it. Can I touch them? You know, like, I love shoes. <laughs> we made this little connection and so I, I, I ultimately was like, you know, he's the guy. Like I, he just, and I've heard from many people, he was a miracle worker in the operating room. Um, 
And so we scheduled the surgery. It was the week of Thanksgiving, 2011. Um, and I decided to have the surgery on a Monday because the week of Thanksgiving, nobody would know. Like other mm-hmm. than my immediate family, nobody would know that I was out of work. Nobody would mm-hmm. ask questions if I took the week off. So I prepped my team. I told my, my real estate team that I was going to be out for possibly a very long time. And they'd have to run the show. Um, and I went in for surgery. The surgery was uh, as complicated as it gets. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the cancer mass was as big as your head. It was as big as a basketball. Wow. Um, it was wrapped up in all my other organs. Uh, Dr. Walsh took out my not only the, the cancer mass, but also he took out my stomach, my gallbladder, my spleen, most of my pancreas, most of my liver. Uh, he had to reconstruct the veins and the arteries leading to my liver because they were smashed and crushed by the by the cancer mass. Um, I was in ICU for three days. I woke up about 36 hours after the surgery started. Um, I lost 50 pounds in three weeks after the surgery. I had to relearn how to eat. Um, all while my wife was at home taking care of three very, very small kids. Um, I didn't work for nine months. I didn't work for three or four months before the surgery. I just, you, if you added up all the accumulated time off for preparation, doctor's appointments, my son, my wife, having a child, my son's surgery. Um, I took nine months off of work and my business totally fell apart. Hmm. Uh, And I realized after the surgery was over, that I had made a major mistake is that even though I was in in real estate, now the fact that I was so transactional mm-hmm. came back to bite me in the butt big time. And selling products or selling houses, flipping houses, it was very much dependent, Jamie, on me mm-hmm. going in and making the phone calls and talking to people and coordinating and being you know a transaction engineer. There's a lot of training programs and guru programs out there that tell you, be a transaction engineer. That's very real. That's very true. It very much works. Mm-hmm. Right. But if you don't go and be that transaction engineer that day, right? do you have a team that can transact without you? And do you really have a business? I mean, it, 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 I mean, in reality, it's another job. Yes, you don't have a boss, but you kind of do because you, you're you're kind of enslaved to that, that role, right? I mean, right. you got to put food on the table. Um, it's really not at least the type of business you probably wanted. So, um, so just, I know we're going to get into some lessons that you learned and you've got those pretty, pretty well, uh, ironed out. It sounds like, so what's the transition there? I, I guess, as far as, you know, in the, to be clear, the risk with, with this show is we gloss over all this pain and hardship and we, you know, that that's not the intent. We understand that this is, very real and was a very human experience. But we do have limited time and we do want the audience to benefit from the show, of course, right? So transition us, what, what was the transition like kind of from a mindset standpoint from, say, when you woke up in the hospital to, you know, reinventing your business? How did that application of lessons learned go? Mm. Uh, well, I think it started back to my father, right? My, my entrepreneurial mentor, but a very wise man. Um, he said to me before the surgery, he said, Josh, listen, um, 
there's going to be so many lessons that come out of this hmm. that, you know, I hope you make it. We all hope you make it. We're going to assume that you're going to make it. And this is a major, major life event for you, he would tell me. And he would say, um, there's going to be some major lessons that if you really pay attention in the second half of your life, hmm. all the lessons that you learn from this experience are going to have a major impact on the second half of your life. I mean, so I got, that's, that's fascinating. I, I mean, that really is, I'm, <laughs> you know, and that's, you start comparing oh, different people's adversity with other people, right? And, and in this case, you did have some time to prepare, right? So wow. yes, you were surprised by, by the condition, but you had time to prepare for the surgery. And I mean, that is just wise beyond words. Yeah. Um, that's, so, that's, that's, so the reason why we're here, Jamie, talking, and it's yeah. mostly because, and I want to, I want to just want to recognize yeah. the fact that I got very sage, wise advice from my father to say, make sure you pay attention to what you learn. Don't just go through this and survive it. Right. Go, go through it, survive it, please, son, right. survive this. <laughs> right. But also, right. pay very close attention to what you learn along the way hmm. and use that in the second half of your life. Because he said it would be a shame if you weren't a totally different person after this huh. than you are that's today. So good. That's, that's, that's phenomenal advice. That's just, yeah. that's awesome. So, so he, says, he yeah. says that to me. And so I started listening. I started really paying attention. And then, yeah. so one of the things I learned business-wise, Jamie, was that I, I hadn't really invested for cash flow. I thought I did. I thought the business was producing cash, which it was. It was throwing off a lot of income. Right, but it wasn't right. producing true passive income. And so when I look at now, fast forward 11 years, one of the things that I think elite entrepreneurs do, eight-figure, nine-figure investors do, we have a $300 million portfolio now. We have over 12, 13, $14 million flows into our business every year in rental income. Um, and just that alone is a massive amount of cash flowing through our business. Sure. And I don't talk to a single tenant. You know, we have like 8,000 people that live on campus of our different properties. And I don't talk to a single one of them. And so what I realized in the mistake that I made is that I didn't invest for cash flow now and do things to create true passive income. What many entrepreneurs make the mistake of is they invest their own cash in their own business, but the yep. business still needs sweat equity to make money. Well, when you add in the sweat equity, you've eliminated true passive income. Sure. So one sense. of the things, and this is my number one characteristic that I learned in the number mm -hmm. one mistake I made 11 mm -hmm. years ago. And the number one thing that I focus on every day now is how do I add more top line gross cash flow in the, in the, in the apartment business we call it a GPR, gross potential rent. How do I add more of that to my, to my portfolio every day by renewals, turning units, adding more properties to our portfolio, uh, you know, selling off anything that's underperforming or things that are optimized where I can exit that deal, take the profit and then invest as a limited partner in, mm -hmm. in, in, as a passive, truly passive investor to build the passive, passive income. Mm -hmm. Because the last thing you want to have is what happened to me. When you get ripped away from your business for nine months and mm -hmm. you have no true passive income coming in, then you almost have to work while you're trying to survive, like literally mm -hmm. trying to just make it another day uh, mm -hmm. uh, and stay alive and make it through the surgery and then make it through the recovery. 
And then imagine having to think like, how do I care for my wife and three kids still? So my bank account was dwindling down quickly. We were spending way more money. The business had expenses that we couldn't pay that were then going to fall onto me personally. All of that was the mistake I made 11 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I vowed that I'd never make that mistake again. So what was the difference? Just quick with the business, you know, nine months, or you know, between those nine months, across the nine months, what was the difference before and after if you did a quick snapshot of your business? Yeah, so before... Uh, we were easily in like generating between the flips we were doing, uh, some of the coaching programs and the seminars that we were doing. Uh, our business was floating in the four to five million a year of gross income with about a 20% margin. So I was making 800,000 to a million bucks a year of personal income. Wow. We went within that nine months because I couldn't do any seminars, coaching. I couldn't really flip any houses or do any wholesale deals. I had to completely learn a new way. Um, I mean, our income the next calendar year thereafter mm-hmm. was way under $2 million with still similar expenses. So now not only was I not making personal income to $800,000 to a million of personal income, right, we were right. bleeding negative about three to four to five hundred thousand dollars that next year. Wow. It was a million five in swing. Right. A million to the positive to about five hundred thousand to the negative. And the cash that we had of both in the business accounts and my personal accounts was disappearing fast. Right. Which is l- the last thing you need from a personal standpoint to, to get healthy and <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, from a family standpoint, all the other factors, uh, facets to your life. Um, so I, I can imagine just mentally it's all feeding on it's each other. So, you know, the business is, is hurting you personally and hurting your family and, and it all works together. So how did you, how did you pull yourself out of that? Um, so one of the lessons I learned right before the surgery is, um, I was able to get involved in a couple of deals truly passively. I, I, I was uh-huh. able to arrange the deal and arrange the debt, recruit the private money, but I had an operator that we knew I was sick, that he was going to do the deal while I was sick. He was going to basically fix the property up and we were going to flip it and sell it or we were going to keep it. And he did the day-to-day operational work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I arranged most of the private money and helped find the deal and structure it. And mm-hmm. then, so my surgery was in November. In April, six months later, I we got... We got checks for about $100,000 from these two deals. About fifty to 60000 of it was mine based on our split. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I never saw the property more than two or three times. That's awesome. And I was like, okay, wh- what did I just learn from that? Well, what, what I did was I was specifically focused on finding the funding, the p- true private money, not, mm-hmm. not family office money, not mm-hmm. debt from banks, uh, not institutional capital or venture capital money, but true private money from private investors mm-hmm. that I had relationships with that were able to, willing to put up the money, even though they knew the circumstances with me. That aha moment for me mm-hmm. was like, hey, Josh, the, the money, the freedom is in the funding. If you, Josh, focus on relationships with true private investors mm-hmm. that can fund that last piece of the capital stack. Like you get, you know, debt for the first piece from a bank or from a private lender, or, you know, right. a company. But the, the, the stack that most people don't 
get or fail to get. I'm going to focus on getting that. Hmm. That was the aha moment. I became fanatical about, okay, what are the SEC rules? What's 506B? What's 506C? How can Mm -hmm. I raise capital? Can I create a fund? Can I create a funnel? What are all the things I can do? Relationships. How do I create a pitch book? And all while I was still recovering, I was literally in my sweatpants up in my master bedroom because I could still barely go out. I could barely eat. I became fanatical about learning about private capital. So much so that today we've raised over $100 million. And when I say $100 million, Jamie, I'm not talking about $100 million from a family office or from an institution or from right. a bunch of capital. It's $100 million from private investors, like the mom and pop private investors that have between 100 grand and 2 million bucks. A lot of guys with 200,000, 300,000, 100,000, 50,000, half a million in that range. And I just said, look, if I could get access to that type of funding, I could go buy any asset I want. Sure. That makes and a lot of sense. A hundred percent of my focus. And so one of the other lessons I've learned yeah. in fighting this is that the super elite entrepreneurs, the eight, nine figure investors, including myself and guys and girls that I know, mm-hmm. they have one superpower. They have one super niche skill, one mm-hmm. super niche talent that mm-hmm. they're unbelievably good at. They recognize it, and that's all mm. they do. Okay. That's what they focus on. Um, interesting. Now, do you think your time, because you were recovering, you had more time to figure that out? I mean, it, I mean, I had way it, too much time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I had way too much time to think. Sure. Uh, I was literally spinning in circles, you know, often gotcha. many days thinking about like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Right. So, and and that was more born out of, hey, this is what actually what I'm really good at is is raising capital and relationships or how did you make that decision? That's, that's what you want to focus on. Um, I think like most entrepreneurs, Jamie, it's a combination of, um, it's a combination of reflection of w- what am I really good at? Like if I look back at my last day, week, month, year, 10 years, what was I really, really good at? What did I really enjoy? Sure. And and this is so critical because this goes all the way back to my private practice when I was a financial planner. Like that lesson that I got from being a financial planner mm-hmm. of coming out of college and doing that, following my dad's lead as an entrepreneur mm-hmm. into financial planning is what led me to be comfortable around money. Mm. And I thought like when I was really in my joy, when I was really in my, my, my wheelhouse and having yeah. fun, I was meeting with a client or I was on the phone with a client. I was talking about money. I was helping them plan their future or I was talking to a private lender. Like I got off on that. I loved it. It was fun. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't really in like doing the deal, like buying an apartment. It wasn't really in the deal, like buying a rental or flipping a house. It mm-hmm. wasn't getting the money to do it. Yeah. No, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, and it's, it's really relationships and dealing with the money and talking about money. And so that's, sounds like that's what Jamie was. It was out of desperation. Like (laughs) when you face that kind of adversity, which you talk show, right. When you are facing adversity and you are desperate, you get really freaking creative. Like you try to find ways Mm -hmm. problems faster, quicker, because you freaking have to. Yeah. Your back's against the wall. I mean, it's, you have no other options. Right. 
Makes so a lot of sense. And my dad said, you're going to learn a lot of lessons. I was like, okay, well, you know, I'm learning too many here. Like I'd, I'd like <laughs> less, but I learned, wow, like the comfort of being successful, mm-hmm. making that 800,000 to a million dollars actually made me less creative. It made me less um, flexible. It made me less like I wasn't as good at solving problems because I didn't feel like I had to because I was making this big income, right? Sure. The desperation, the adversity, I became really creative out of pure desperation, right? So when I recognize I got to solve problems and what am I really good at? Raising money. What do I really like? Raising money, talking to people about money. I'm like, all right, let's let's focus on that. that. Yeah. Makes sense. So the first one, first lesson was you essentially were too active or uh, remind me exactly what the first lesson was. So really the first lesson it, 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 to turn this into a positive, right, is invest for cash flow now. Right, right. Invest for cash flow now. But, but it, that ties into your, you were too active and too transactional in your business. So invest for cash flow now. And the then second the second one. Learned, the one major one, Jamie, is you're, you're, this is part of the desperation lesson I just talked about is that entrepreneurs, successful entrepreneurs, people that come back from adversity realize that they're 100% responsible for their own life. Nobody is coming to our rescue. Mm-hmm. Like I realized that even though if I was going to survive, I was going to have a major physical recovery from this major surgery. But I also realized nobody was going to come and fix my business. Nobody was going to come and fix my income problem. My sure. debt problem, like I had a major problem and nobody was going to come to my rescue. So I had to get really creative. Like I just talked about that desperation yeah. made me realize I'm, I'm hundred percent responsible, right? I can't blame anybody else. I'm the yeah. one that got sick. Like, so let's go fix the problem. That's the second major lesson. The third one is you have to realize that most successful entrepreneurs are really only good at one or two things. They have a major superpower that they're good at and then they leverage it and they focus on it and they focus on it and they think about it and they execute on that. Most entrepreneurs, including me, Jamie, have major, major faults, major things we do terrible, major things that we're not good at. But this huge portfolio that we've built and all this income that's going through our business is because I focused on one superpower which is I'm going to be really good at understanding the rules, understanding the laws, talking to the attorneys, networking with investors, and raising capital. And then I'll figure out where to park it all. Is it going to go to what fund? Is it going to go into an apartment building? Am I going to buy self-storage? Am I going to buy retail? Am I going to do a, a rental portfolio? That didn't matter. Mm-hmm. What I was going to buy didn't matter as much as I was going mm-hmm. to go get access to all the cash. And I think that what, what that really speaks to as well from the investor standpoint is they're investing in you. they're investing in the relationship your track record you as a decision maker as an entrepreneur um you know because otherwise it sounds like the investors for the most part weren't weren't overly tied to a specific asset class or strategy which just speaks to your ability to communicate and develop those relationships and deliver uh on, on you know previously on previous deals prior deals so that's that's awesome um Okay, so that's that's the top three. I know we have what six more, yeah. right? There, there, there's 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 nine or ten. I probably won't have time to get to them all. But sure. one of the things I think, let me skip a couple. Um, and one of the things I think that I've learned over the last ten years that's been critical to my success is that really successful entrepreneurs and big income earners, they're able to scale by using what I call the one to many 
one-to-many concept, the one-to-many, which is you're one person, Jamie, I'm one person. We're Mm -hmm. speaking through this platform to many, many people. Yeah. And every major successful entrepreneur is never, you realize, never doing like one-on-one stuff. They're not doing a one-on-one launch to raise money. They're not doing a one-on-one training. They don't do anything one-on-one. They do everything one-to-many. So the question becomes is, how can I speak? How can I teach in front of massive crowds? Hmm. How can I speak? How can I teach instead of to one person to 10 or to 100 or to 1,000? How can I get my message out to hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, millions of people? How can mm-hmm. I write a book that tells my message? How can I host a podcast that can you know tell my message? How can I have a YouTube channel, a, a Facebook platform, an Instagram page? Whatever that looks like, mm-hmm. a, a LinkedIn Uh, profile, whatever that is. There's so many great social media platforms from the written ones to the, to the video ones to audio like this. You have to scale one or maybe two of those platforms really well and create a following Mm -hmm. of people who believe in you, who will invest with you, who invest in you, whatever that is. And every major entrepreneur, like they have that type of one to many concept nailed. Mm-hmm. They have one really platform good. that they're awesome at, and they have a crowd that watches them, that follows them, that listens to them. And as I got larger and larger into apartments, I had to raise more and more and more money. And mm-hmm. my YouTube channel, my uh, podcast, my different platforms all became mm-hmm. massively important. And I realized when I put out one message like this one podcast with you, there's mm-hmm. going to be tens of thousands of people who are going to hear this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And that allows me to have a thought leadership platform and a message I want to deliver, but also sure. raise tons of money because the people, people who are on the mic, they automatically get a sense of authority, right? Sure. If you've read any kind of book, like Robert Cialdini's book called Influence, one of them is called, one of the major influences is authority. Mm-hmm. When you host some sort of one-to-many concept, one, one platform, mm-hmm. this is a big one. And I yeah. realized back then, I was talking, having far too many like one-on-one trainings, Mm one-on-one meetings with investors. I had a little lunch. I had a little, you know, soup with somebody. Forget all that. Now I barely leave my house, (laughs) right? But I'm on these platforms and I have a major, major following and influence now. Yeah, that's really good. Now, did that evolve over time, that principle? Or was that that specifically? Okay. We started a podcast with no clue what we were doing in 2013. (laughs) Like 2014. Yeah. I remember if you know Michael Blanc from his uh, yeah. you know, apartment. I, mm-hmm. Mike, like Michael was on my show. It was like the mm-hmm. third show he ever did. And now he's massive and he's got all kind yeah. of great stuff going on. And right. But we just did it because I'm like, well, we had a pretty successful webinars that we were doing. And I'm like, this podcasting looks kind of cool. Um, yeah, so that was yeah. a big one. Another major lesson, Jamie, was listen, yeah. every major entrepreneur and eight, nine figure investor uses technology as a weapon. Like Mm -hmm. they use software. Like we use Infusionsoft. We use a program called Builder Trend. We use a program called Happy Co. We use a program called Appfolio. We use a program called MailerLite. We have all these softwares, these technologies. Mm -hmm. And I'm not just, you know, playing with Facebook and flipping through. Mm -hmm. We're using software as a weapon. So much so, Jamie, that we tell our staff, if it's not in the software, it didn't happen. <laughs> That's pretty right. good. That's good. Well, so, I'm just th- I'm happy that I'm familiar with at least a couple of those. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, like, yeah, we we use that folio as well. Yep. 
you want to scale as a CEO, like I don't have yeah. time to talk to people one on one. What the hell's going on? Sure. Numbers never lie, sure. right? So if I could see the numbers in these different softwares, whether it's we send an email, what was our open rate? We send an email, what was our click through rate? We have a podcast, how many downloads did we get? Uh, if we raised capital, if if we did a webinar, how many people attended? If sure. we have a three hundred unit apartment and you know how how many of those are occupied? How many are paying? What's the what's the effective economic vacancy? I can sure. see all that. Like, That's I, I pretty much do this. I work out in the morning, and then I get in front of these softwares and I use them as a weapon, and I can make decisions without talking to anybody. Whereas back before, when I was doing a very manual business, it was like, okay, let's have a meeting and talk right, about right. these deals and how we're going to get them across the goal line and how we can make forty thousand dollars on a deal. And we had to have a meeting about it, you know, <laughs> it co- collaborate on all of our notes and what was in our head. Now right. it's kind of the software. It didn't happen. And so that's a major one, right? That's a major, major one that I learned. That's a real thing that like technology is amazing, but the adoption rate of technology is terrible. So many companies don't adopt it. Well, we tell our people like, don't tell me, don't call me, don't text me and tell me <laughs> software and I can see it. Sure. Right? That's major, a great major mind- one. Yeah, that's a really good mindset shift and and practical application as well. Uh, are there any, any other kind of lessons learned or principles you want to hit on before we start to wrap up here? Yeah, I think another major one real quick is service. I, I realized that service trumps price, okay? Uh, with our apartment buildings now, we buy like 1960s, 1970s, 1980s vintage, but we 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 do a major renovation of the apartment complex. So we'll spend $8,000, $10,000 in each unit. Hmm. Upgrading it with luxury vinyl, white shaker cabinets, black matted hardware, stainless steel appliances. So we'll do that in the B-class suburbs. We'll buy like a C-class type of asset in mm-hmm. a B-class suburb and mm-hmm. we'll renovate it like an A-class downtown property mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we get major rent bumps. We'll take mm-hmm. rents from $700 to 1200 bucks. Yeah, because if you did that in the C-class neighborhood, it wouldn't support that much value, right? right? So B-class suburbs, people want that stuff, right? If they sure. can buy a, a house. And right now we have such an affordability problem in the United States. Right. So you weren't one of these investors who hopped in in the last uh, two, three years and kind of just rode the wave then? <laughs> I've been doing this a long time, my friend. I'm definitely not one of those guys. Um, but we, I mean, obviously the last couple of years have been good to us, but we've been sure. investing in apartments for a long time. And yeah. uh, certainly we sold off some assets last year that happened very fast. And we had a, a quick hit on a building that we bought and sold. But mm-hmm. that's not our that's not our strategy. Not our strategy. Bread and butter, buy, right? Renovate, refi, and keep forever. Um, yeah. so service trumps price. If you give people good service, good management service, a good product, mm-hmm. a good unit to live in, take care of their maintenance issues and work orders quickly, mm-hmm. we can charge a premium price. Hmm. Right? That's, White that's... glove service in all of our businesses, from how I treat my staff to how my staff treats our residents, and how my staff treats the the, the maintenance guy, the property managers. Right, mm-hmm. white glove all the way down. Service trumps price because if you provide great service, then you could almost charge whatever price you want. You can get away with charging a lot. Now, would you say that same thing applies in your business with raising capital? And you know, go ahead, Absolutely. speak to that. Absolutely, Jimmy. So many investors and apartment syndicators they rely on their software. They'll put the deal in their software, mm-hmm. and then they'll send out a notice to their investors and say, "Hey, right. I have this new deal. Go subscribe." I right. do the exact opposite. I When I have a deal that I know is going to go, that we write an LOI, LOI gets accepted, I tell my assistant, 
get everybody on my calendar, one-on-one meetings with everybody. Hmm. So for like the next two or three weeks, I'll be packed with one-on-one after one-on-one, Zoom call, Zoom call, Zoom call, Zoom call. And I'll say the Mm -hmm. same damn thing, Mm -hmm. 30 or 40 investors. Mm -hmm. But then when I go to host a webinar to raise capital for that deal, Mm -hmm. I've got 50 to 90% of that deal already sold out. Locked up, yeah. Locked up. So then when I go to the rest of the investors that I haven't had a chance to talk to yet, and I say, hey, we're going to raise $5 million for this $20 million complex, but you know what? I'm sorry. 3.5 million is already mm-hmm. spoken for. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard committed that 3.5 million. Then I have no problem raising the rest. Again, go back to Robert Cialdini's book, Influence. And that social proof, which is another mm-hmm. uh, big influencer, that mm-hmm. social proof of, hey, three, 35 other people already committed to this. Yeah. So I'm just going to do it. Like it's the, it's the FOMO, right? It's the fear of missing out. Sure. FOMO, fear of missing out. I'm going to do yeah. it because everybody else did it. So that that one-on-one to me is is a big time secret sauce for us. And that allows me to also dictate the terms, right? So I could pay maybe a little bit less pref or pay a little bit less equity because mm-hmm. of that service I provide, that relationship that we provide. People mm-hmm. really, really trust us. That's really good. You've decided where you want to compete and it's not necessarily on price. It's, it's on over-delivering on the service side. And remember, um, Jamie, my superpower, right? So when I'm, when I'm on the phone with those investors one-on-one, yeah. I joy. I'm having fun. Right. Superpower. And I'm going to win those conversations like 99 times out of 100 because I enjoy it so much. Right. So not only does it give me personal fulfillment, but I also feel like I'm really helping these investors out by providing them an opportunity that they sure. wouldn't get in the stock market. Right. So it, it's, it it's win win back and forth. And it makes me feel really good about what we're doing makes a lot of sense. And you're very intentional about, it's not a one-on-one call with your property manager <laughs> or right. your tenant. It's uh, you're, you're very uh, calculated about how you spend that one-on-one time, it sounds like. So um, so Josh, I know we're pretty much out of time. I know you have a, a thousand things <laughs> to sure. get to, I'm, I'm sure, but I really do appreciate you coming on. Um, let, me, let me ask you like a few really quick rapid fire questions before we wrap up. What is a book or two that you'd recommend for my audience? Uh, so I'm a huge fan of Simon Sinek, The Infinite Game. Um, and uh, I believe it's The Power of Why. I love his stuff. Um, yep. The book Who Not How by... Um, oh, uh, Dan uh, uh, Sullivan, yep. I think. Dan Sullivan's yeah. one of my lo- recent favorites. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, I've, I've got my my Audible right here in front of me. But those are... Yeah. those. I mean, I love... Those are some good ones. Infinite Game had a huge impact on me, Jamie, because okay. it, it just made... It, it reinforced... That although apartments take a little longer, I'm playing the infinite game because I can hold that asset forever. Um, and so that that that's probably my biggest recommendation is that one. It's a really good one. Um, what's one question you wish I had asked that I haven't asked? Anything you want to touch on that we haven't covered? Um, you know, man, I don't know. Uh, that's I'm not, I haven't really had anybody ever ask me that. <laughs> but look, I, here's one of the things I would say is that I, I feel like social media is the ultimate time waster. So two of the other things that I didn't talk about that I'll just touch on for five seconds yeah. is one of the other characteristics is elite entrepreneurs have super time management skills. And number two, they, re, they refuse what I call the OCD screen sucking loop. So have you ever gotten on like Facebook and then all of a sudden yeah. you're also on Instagram and then also, all of a sudden you're also checking your email 
and then you're watching Hulu and then a YouTube video and then two hours goes by and you're like, what the hell am yeah, I yeah. doing? I just blew two hours. So that that to me, like I delete all the social media apps from my phone and I only re-download them when I need them because I think they're so good at stealing mm-hmm. our time. I think I think I learned that one from James Clear uh, who wrote a... Uh, Atomic Habits. That's a, that's a really good recommendation. Oh, is that a good book? I have that's that. That's a really good book. Yeah, it's very practical. It's just about developing that. I think, it's, you know, goals are important. He's not knocking goals, but it's really the implementation of habits is where you should kind of focus, focus your, your attention is right. his point. Love it. Um, anyway, uh, where can our listeners find out about uh, about you and what you've got going on. Where can sure. they reach out? Where do you want to point people to? Yeah, just our main website, freelandventures.com slash passive. Uh, there you'll find our portfolio, um, you know, our background, bios, all that kind of stuff. A lot of our investment criteria is in there. People want to possibly invest with us and take a look at our deal flow. That's great. Um, all Everything's there, freelandventures.com slash passive. Awesome. Well, you're you're uh, one of those guests. You, you've there's so much we could talk about that. That the only challenging part with this interview is, like I said before, there's so many rabbit holes I I personally want to go down, <laughs> and so that's a good problem to have. Uh, so this has been a fantastic show. Um, again, you know, obviously, sorry you had to go through the the personal adversity that you, that you did, and we we kind of do just gloss over it. But I, I'm very thankful that you spent this time and you were vulnerable with us, Josh, um, so that our audience can benefit and and understand that I, I love the just your father's uh, advice about going into the adversity. Um, that that really hit me because you know then you can kind of see it as an opportunity, you know, and, and a blessing, if you will. Um, you know, easy for me to say behind the the monitor and the in <laughs> the podcast, Mike, but. Um, I think our listeners could take from from that that hey, I'm going to face adversity in the future. It, we don't know what it's going to look like, but there are lessons to be learned and impact to be made and wealth and uh, all these other things on the other side of that. If you're willing to have an open mind about what you can learn through that adversity, um, so that's for me that was my biggest takeaway. I think I'll have several other big ones if, when I re-listen to this one, but. <laughs> so Josh, advice. I know I rambled there, but I really, I really want to thank you once again for coming on. Really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Jamie, thanks so much for having me on, man. This was a blast. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. And to our listeners out there, thank you very much for spending your most valuable resource with us. And that's your time. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Hey there, it's Jamie Bateman. Ever felt boxed in by life's challenges? Dive into my new book, From Adversity to Abundance, Inspiring Stories of Mental, Physical, and Financial Transformation, available now on Amazon. From a former bank robber's redemption to a young entrepreneur's victory over hurdles, these stories are not just inspiration. They're the roadmaps to your transformation. Whether for you or as a powerful gift to friends and family, especially those who might not tune into podcasts, 
This book is a beacon to a life of abundance. Ignite that inner fire and set your course to the life you've imagined. Purchase yours today on Amazon and light the path for someone you love.